Well, good morning and Happy New Year. Good to see everyone here today and I'm grateful that we get to worship together. I want us to uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. That's where we're going to be today. And uh, we're going to be taking a, a slight detour from our study in Romans to study a chapter in one of Jesus' favorite books of the Bible. Did you know that? Deuteronomy is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. And when Jesus is facing temptation in the wilderness against Satan, Deuteronomy is where he turns to remember obedience to God. Deuteronomy is where he turns to fend off the temptations and lies of Satan. So Deuteronomy is etched into the mind of Christ, and it's etched into the mind of all the New Testament writers. In fact, you'll find that the book of Romans is filled with allusions to Deuteronomy. That Deuteronomy is like the scaffolding that Romans is built on top of. And that's one of the reasons why we're going to be studying Deuteronomy in our men's and women's Bible studies and in our college ministry this coming semester. So that it can be a complement to understanding the gospel in the Old Testament. Sometimes we think that the Old Testament is when God was cranky, he was mean, he was just about obedience and law and being, you know, all this stuff, and then he, he lightened up in Jesus. The New Testament, he just finally chilled out, and now he's full of grace. But we believe that all of Scripture is inspired by God, that it tells one cohesive story, that the Old Testament is filled with grace. Every artery, every vein of the Old Testament is filled with grace. And so on the eve of the new year, or that's past the eve of the year, in this new year, as we're thinking about 2022, and we're reflecting on 2021, and we're thinking about what we want this year to look like, I want us to begin not with an endless list of resolutions or things to do or any of that sort. I want us to begin with a renewal of what the gospel is in our minds. I want to see the gospel through new eyes, to refresh it in our minds. G.K. Chesterton, he's a a wonderful Christian writer, he, he says this, the object of a new year is not that we should have a new year. It is that we should have a new soul and a new nose, new feet, a new backbone, new ears, and new eyes. Unless a man starts afresh about these things, he will certainly do nothing effective. We need new eyes, new ears, to see and to hear the same old gospel. We need a renewal of the truths that we understand, that are in our hearts. And Deuteronomy is one of the great texts to draw that out. So this is the gospel according to Deuteronomy. So read along with me. It'll be up on the screens and we can read along together in the word uh, itself. This is Deuteronomy chapter 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the people where the Lord, the, your God, has scattered you. And if your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. 
And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you, And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you Turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I commanded you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Let's pray for our time in the Word together. Our Father, we know that all Scripture is inspired by you and useful and profitable in training us in righteousness. And we pray that you would open up our hearts to receive this teaching, to hear from your mouth what you would have to say to us today. And that in doing so, we would be richly blessed and filled with all the things you promised to us in Jesus Christ, filled with hope filled with rejoicing and filled with a renewed sense of obedience and loyalty to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Deuteronomy uh, is a series of five sermons that Moses gives to the Israelites as they're about to enter into the promised land. So they're right there on the border. Moses is there, and he knows that he's not going to enter the promised land with them. So these are his last words to Israel. This is his five-part sermon series to make sure that when Israel enters the land, they obey God's covenant. So God's covenant is a legal bond that he has with Israel that if they obey him, then they will possess the land, they will enjoy the fruit of the land, and they will prosper. But if they disobey him, They will forfeit that blessing and they will be cut off. They will be exiled from the land and cut off from the blessing of God. And so Moses, knowing that this is his last official act as their leader, knowing that leadership is going to transition to Joshua and they're going to enter the land without him, he's there making sure they're on the same page. Remember the promises of God. Remember the law of God. Remember what he has called you to do and who he has called you to be. He's sort of like a parent, you know, dropping off, you know, parents dropping off their kids at college. You're just like, look, we've said all we can. Just remember the things we taught you, please. And it'll go well with you in college, right? We've trained you for 18 years. You've come of age. Now it's time for you to to go to college, to to be independent. And Moses is with that same mentality. He's going, "I've, I've shepherded you for 40 years. I've led you for 40 years in wilderness. I've taught you the law. I'm gonna die. I'm not gonna enter the land. So remember the things that the Lord spoke through me to you, that it may go well with you in the land. You have come of age, go take the land. 
And the same call is to us. One of the connecting links, and the greatest connecting link between the Old Testament and us, New Testament believers, is God. It's the same God. Different cultures, different times, different circumstances, same God, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the promises that he gives to them are promises that we also, through the gospel, through Christ, can receive for ourselves. And the same call to obedience is the same call of obedience to us. We are the inheritors of these promises. And so God is calling us this year to do what he's been calling his people all the years since the days of Moses standing on the precipice of the, of the, of the promised land. Trust and obey. Trust the Lord and obey what he says. Right? Renew your heart, your mind. See with your new eyes and, and new ear and hear with new ears the promises of God and respond with obedience and trust. So here are three promises that we can believe as a church this coming year, as Four Oaks Midtown in 2022. These are the things that we can respond to in faith and in trusting obedience. First is the promise that God will restore you. God will restore you. And the second is that God will change you. And the final promise is that God will bless you. He'll restore you, he'll change you, and he will bless you. The first promise, God's promise of restoration. God will restore you. Deuteronomy 29, right before this, Moses calls Israel, again, to remember the covenant, right? As I was saying earlier. But it doesn't just end there. He doesn't just say, remember, obey, and if you disobey, you'll be cursed. But in the opening verses of Deuteronomy 30, God doesn't just tell us how to avoid sin. He also tells us what to do when we've sinned. He doesn't just tell us how to not blow it completely. He tells us when you've blown it completely, this is what you do. This is what you do. He says when, not if, but when the blessing and the curse come upon you, here's what you need to remember. Israel, when you find yourself in exile, when you find yourself under foreign rulers, when you find yourself cut off from the land, here's what I want you to remember. Return to the Lord your God you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. And if you do that, if you call to mind that promise, I will turn to you. I will restore you. I will pick you up from the the ends of the earth and gather you back in the land, and I will prosper you, and I will delight in showing mercy to you. In other words, when you've screwed it all up, return to me, and I'll restore you. I will bring forgiveness and restoration, and show you mercy. So God's law is gracious. God's law is great. It's not this oppressive set of things that God places just to toy with us. The law doesn't just tell us, again, how to avoid sin. It tells us what to do when we sin. What does the law contain? It contains a whole book called Leviticus on what to do when you've screwed up. It contains all these laws protecting the sojourner, the widow, and the fatherless. It has all these laws calling us to live in love and harmony with one another. God's law is gracious, and it is a gift given to us. And when we think about obedience to the law, we're not talking about perfect obedience. 
That's why the Apostle Paul in Philippians can say, I'm blameless before the law. Or David can, in Psalm 18, says that he's blameless before God. They're not saying that they're sinless or perfect. They're saying that they're following the law. They're saying that when they sin, they confess it and they offer a sacrifice. And they receive the provisions for sin in the Old Testament. So faithfulness to God is possible. He's not talking about exacting down to the decimal point, fulfilling everything. He's saying trusting, not just in obedience, the the laws given to us, the rules and regulations, but also the provision in the law to trust the Lord. Because the law isn't just filled. When we think about the law, we think about the first five books of the Bible. We, We don't just think about the regulations. We think about the promises. The, 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 the law of God is filled with poetry and songs and historical narratives of redemption and reconciliation, and it's full of promises of hope. So to follow the law of God is not just rote obedience, it is trusting the promises of God, trusting in the narrative of God, trusting the way that the Old Testament and the law of God reveals His good character. And it's the same law that when Israel finds themselves in exile, the same law that casts them in exile is the same law that provides them a promise of return. God says to Israel, when you screwed it up, the first thing I want you to do is come back to me. The first place you go when you've sinned is to come to me. I remember uh, reading that it's a, it's this tragic story of a, of a young man who's 20 years old. He, he committed suicide because he lost $730,000 on a little stock trading app, and it was a total glitch of the computer, but he was so distraught that he ended his own life. And and I remember seeing uh, a pastor talk about this moment, and he said, when he read this, he immediately went to his son and said this, son, no matter how bad you've blown it, no matter how bad you've messed up your life, you come to me. We'll work it out. I will help you. Don't take it in your own hands. Come to me. I want to be the first person you talk to, and you'll know that I'm not going to cast you out. We're going to work through this together. And God is saying that. When you sin, the first person you come to is me, because I've promised you restoration. I've promised you forgiveness. I've promised you mercy and grace. Whatever it is, come to me, because God is the only one who can do anything with your sin. He's the only one who can cast it away. He's the only one that can actually deal with that problem. And it's God's promise that makes repentance, changing your mind, confessing your sin, and and, and turning back toward God. The only way that's possible is because of God's promise of restoration. And repentance is not just a a one-time thing that you did back in the day, youth camp or something like that. It's not just that. Martin Luther said when God calls you to repent, he means that all of life is to be repentance. All of life. You screw up again, and what's the, what, what do you do? The, the same thing you always do. You return to the Lord. You believe the promises of the gospel. You go back to him. You confess. You, you trust in the grace of God. All of life, you never excel or graduate beyond dependence on the grace of God. And notice that God doesn't just forgive you abstractly from a distance in a cloud somewhere. The Lord personally forgives you, and he personally delights in prospering you, in blessing you, in forgiving you, in restoring you. He personally gathers you up from the pit of sin, dusts you off, forgives you, and restores you. Think about 
the parable of the prodigal son. You have a son who runs off with the inheritance, he spurns his father, and then as he's sitting in a pit eating the same food as pigs, when he's in exile from his father, he comes to his senses and he goes back and what does he find? He sees his dad running towards him, lifting up the robes so that he can run with full joy to embrace him and kiss him on his forehead. Do you think about God that way? You think about redemption that way. Do you think about the freedom of the gospel in that way? And that means that confessing our sin and receiving the grace of God is about joy. God is serious about our joy. You think about last week when Lance preached about that. He preached about the joy of confessing your sins and and being forgiven. And that's what God wants for us. One of my uh, seminary professors used to say, repentance is not done until there's rejoicing. Repentance is not done until there's rejoicing, right? Repentance is not something that we do hoping that God might show us mercy if we feel bad enough. But repentance is something we do in response to the promise that God has already made to show us mercy. It's his promise that makes repentance possible. And when we think about the new year, one of the things we look forward to is a clean start. Right, a clean slate. The old year is done, good or bad, and we have something new to look forward to. But God gives us that clean slate every moment of our lives. God gives us that clean slate that we can have when we turn to him. And he wants you, by faith, to grab it. To grab it, to take hold of it. To believe that in Jesus Christ, your sins have fully been forgiven. And not only that, but that God wants to restore you that God wants to help you, that God wants you to know the blessing of what it means to be a Christian. And this isn't just something that we access only in, the, in sort of the peak moments of our lives, but this is a promise for you right after you snap at your kids, right? Right after you find envy creeping into your heart, right after you have you have fallen in temptation. This is the same promise available to you in every single one of those moments of your life. And this will not lead to people just doing whatever we want. Sometimes when you talk about the, the full forgiveness of God, you think, well, you know, but, but then people are just going to sin as much as they want. And, and, and by the way, Paul says, that's a stupid thing to say. Don't say that. But also, if you get what is happening You will not abuse that grace. If you understand the depth of the grace of God, that's actually what changes you. It's the love of Christ. It's the love of God that changes you. Hasn't that been the case in your own life? Have you ever been shamed to real lasting change? Or has it been a revelation of the love of God that has transformed you from the inside out? That's the way that we change. And that's the second promise that he gives here in this text. God promises to change us, right? He promises to change you from the inside out. What you'll notice is God not only promises Israel's return from exile, but their, but their transformation. The old covenant, the problem with the old covenant, the problem with Israel wasn't the law. It was their own stubborn hearts. So if God exiles Israel, which he did, and they return to him, but their hearts aren't changed, what's going to happen? They're just going to end up exiled again, right? So God not only restores, but he transforms. 
He circumcises their hearts. Israel needs more than just a change of location. They need a change of heart. And God will circumcise their hearts. He will cut off the the sinful flesh that they might have a heart to obey God. So Deuteronomy 30 traces out Israel's history. When the time of blessing and the time of curse comes upon you, which it happened, you think about Solomon's reign, time of great blessing. After that, not so much. They end up going into exile in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, into Babylon. Then they return in Nehemiah and Ezra. But even then, they're, they're, there's not the revival that, that it seems like they expected. There's, there's not the transformation that they expected. They're waiting for one more event. They're waiting for something else to happen. And we see in Colossians 2.11, Jesus Christ is that heart circumcision. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. Colossians 2.1 says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. So when you're in Christ, you are in the circumcision of Christ. And in that, you receive the benefits of his power. You receive the actual transformation of your hearts when you are in Christ. And he says that when you're circumcised in Christ, your body of flesh, the the sinful uh, domination, or the, the domination of sin in your life is broken. It's cut off from you. And now you are freed to grow in obedience to God. So the circumcision of Christ is that that transforming moment in the people of God. By the way, yesterday was the feast of the circumcision of Christ, if anyone celebrated that. But it's something that the church has recognized throughout history. Maybe next year. We can do that next year. But this is why Paul commands us in Romans 6 not to identify with our sin. If you've been circumcised in Christ, if this is true of you, then you should consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. Your self-understanding, your self-identity should be, I am somebody who has been made alive in Christ. And it's interesting, when you read the New Testament, the most often reference to a believer is not sinner. We are sinners, but that's not the primary way we're supposed to view ourselves. The, The way that Paul addresses the churches is saints, your holy ones. Now, he's writing to churches full of sexual immorality, full of uh, false teachers trying to take over, full of greed, full of different factions arguing with each other. Right? This is not some perfect New Testament ideal. These are sinners in churches. But when Paul looks at them, when he addresses them, he always addresses them as saints, as holy ones of God. He addresses them in regards to their status in Christ, not with regard to their status as sinners. He views them through the gracious lens of the gospel. And that's how we're supposed to view ourselves. We consider ourselves dead to sin. We consider ourselves dead to sin. Imagine if you were a slave for many, many years, and then you're finally freed, and then you're walking down the street and you see your old master, and he barks out a command at you. You're going to feel a tug of, I need to listen. And it's in that moment that you have to remember, wait a minute, I'm free. You no longer have power over me. And that's the way we're supposed to view ourselves in Christ. Wait a minute. Sin no longer dominates me. I may struggle with it. 
I, I, I will still sin, but when I'm tempted, I can remind myself the most fundamentally true thing about me is not my sin. It is my standing in Jesus Christ. I'm a saint, not because of my own works, but because of the gracious gift of God. That's the new way that I view myself. And many of us still live as slaves, even though God has called us to freedom. And God's commands, again, are gracious to us. God doesn't command Israel to obey the Ten Commandments, and then he'll deliver them out of Egypt. It's the other way around. He delivers them out of Egypt as a pure act of mercy, and then he gives them the law. He says, I've freed you, now here's how you live as my freed people. I have, I've brought you a promised land, now go take it. I've given you victory over your enemies, now pick up a sword and go fight. I have promised you these things, so receive them. Take them for yourself. Live as free people. Be who I've called you to be. So how do we do that? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians, here's how you, how you become who God has already called you and redeemed you to be. You put off the old self and you put on Christ. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and above all, love, which binds everything together in harmony. All right, that's, that's what a circumcised heart looks like. And, and you cultivate that by letting the word of God dwell in you richly, by teaching and admonishing one another with wisdom, by singing psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs to another, by being grateful to God for everything, and by doing everything in our lives, from cleaning dishes, to paying our taxes, to, to raising kids, to whatever you're doing in your life, do it all to the glory of God. Do it all to the glory of God. That's how you cultivate that joy in obedience. And it's amazing how many times God calls his people to feast in the Old Testament. And all these feasts are tied to God's redemptive works. A feast of Passover, a feast of weeks, a feast of booths. He wants us to enjoy all the blessings of God and remember that they point to the ultimate blessing of redemption. That when we are prospered by God, it's meant to draw us toward greater obedience and greater dependence and greater gratitude for all the things that he has given us. But that's only possible with a circumcised heart. That's only possible if God changes our heart. One of the problems with Israel is God kept blessing them, and they turned around and said, I did all this. They boasted in themselves. They became proud, and they forgot the Lord. But God, one of the great gifts God gives you as a Christian is the ability to find joy and obedience and to be filled with a deep, abiding gratitude for all the good gifts of God that the good things he gives us become conduits through which we can praise God and proclaim his glory. So are, are we singing with that joy? Are we admonishing and teaching one another with wisdom, with that joy? Are we being grateful to God for everything in our lives? That's the heart of a person changed by the love of God. But God is a, is a gracious God, and he blesses us for obedience. And that's the final promise. God blesses obedience. God blesses obedience, but he doesn't do it in a transactional way. He doesn't do it like a vending machine. You know, you do this, you press A1, you get the Snickers bar, you do this thing, you get this blessing. God blesses in, in, in an organic and personal way. God blesses in an organic and personal way. It's not some cosmic algorithm 
you know, or, or equation. God is personal in his blessings. And he, he blesses us. You have to remember, Israel, they're, they're an agrarian culture. They're not thinking in terms of Amazon Prime or, you know, cell phones and instant gratification. They're thinking like farmers. And how does a farmer understand the blessing of God? Right, he, he dutifully, faithfully gets up at 5 a.m. and he plows the field and he works hard and he receives a harvest and he thanks God for it. There's an organic relationship between his obedience and the blessing of God. So somebody who's self-righteous, somebody who's a legalist says this, God, I deserve this blessing because I worked. My work deserves this blessing. And if you don't bless me with the harvest that I want, you have done me an injustice. Okay, that's legalism. But then there's sort of the cheap grace side, which says, God, because you're full of love, just bless me no matter what I do. Bless me despite how bad I've done, or bless me despite my sin. But the grateful heart, the heart that, that Moses wants us to have, is a heart that says, Lord, thank you for prospering the work of my hands. I don't deserve it. You don't owe me this blessing. But thank you for being gracious and blessing the work that I have done. So God does not owe us blessing. You're supposed to obey him no matter what. But he is so kind and gracious that he delights in prospering your obedience. He delights in giving you joy in obedience. You, you, he, he could make you miserable in obedience and you still have to obey. But he's so gracious and kind that he attaches blessings to our obedience. And this is why Moses says, when you remember the law of God, don't act like, don't be overdramatic. Don't act like it's impossible to do. Don't act like you have to climb a mountain into heaven. Don't act like you have to dive into the sea and find this secret wisdom. He says, it's in your heart and in your mouth. Moses brought the law down from the mountain to the people. The blessed man meditates on the word. He internalizes it. It's near to you. It's in your heart to be able to do it. I remember I had a friend who, uh, whenever you'd ask him to do something that was difficult, he would jokingly, he'd be like, I can't, I don't know how. Can't do it, don't know how. As a would be like, you know, open the, fr- the refrigerator, can't, don't know how. And it was just one of these, you know, it was a joking way of, of talking about his own laziness. But God says, you can't say, I don't know how. You can't say, I can't do that. Because God has brought his word near to you. You can't say, I don't know how to love my husband. I don't know how to be more generous with my money. I don't know how to forgive. And God says, don't, don't act like you're some mythical hero. Now, God has brought the word near to you. It's simple, understandable, and clear so that you can do it. So this isn't a simplistic prosperity gospel type of thing where you just ask God for something and he gives you exactly what's on your wish list. But neither is it a view that says all of God's blessings are invisible, stowed away in the future in an undisclosed location that we just imagine. But God blesses us in our lives now. And he blesses us, like I said before, personally. I've heard it said that God is easy to please, but impossible to satisfy. Easy to please, but impossible to satisfy. We were seeing a video this week of uh, some of my friends, their, their little boy just started walking. And it's this little video, he, he gets up, you know, look, kids have those big heads and they don't have any balance. He kind of walks, he wobbles, takes two steps and then falls down. And everybody cheers. Everybody acts like he just won the Nobel 
prize, right? But I think God views our obedience that way. Our stumbling attempts at obedience, he's easy to please. And he's, he's desiring to bless us even for our imperfect obedience, but he's impossible to satisfy. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to get up again and, and try again, and he will be there to mature us and perfect our obedience. So God loves to bless his people. But the presence of blessing is not the absence of sweat. It's not the absence of screaming, you know, kids. It's not the absence of financial setbacks. It's not the absence of trials or suffering. All right, God blesses the work of your hands, the labor, the intense grit and faithfulness and perseverance of your work. If you look at... Uh, the way that God talks about blessings is often generationally. You might not see the full fruit of your works. It might be something your grandchildren see. But the promise is still there. We owe something to those kids in our children's ministry and to their kids. The faithfulness that we sow now, generations in the future will reap. And if you look at Hebrews 11, that whole hall of faithful saints that came before, some of them received blessings in this life, some of them didn't receive blessings and were martyred. But it says that they were martyred and died so that they might rise to a newer life. So the blessings might come in the next life, this life, both. Regardless, we will see the fruit of our work. And it takes faith to believe that. But Hebrews 11 says that all these saints, Abraham, Moses, David, they never saw the fulfillment of God's blessing. It says in verses 11, uh, chapter 11, 39 to 40, that though they were commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. God was some, up to something bigger than their lives, bigger than their generation. And they didn't see the fulfillment of the promises, but they were still faithful so that we might reap the benefit of their faithfulness, that we reap the benefit of the faithfulness of the prophets and the forefathers and, and the apostles. And Lord willing, future generations will reap the benefits of ours. So you have to have the long view in mind when you think about the blessings of God. And some of those blessings we won't see until our own resurrection, until our own inheritance of the kingdom when Christ returns. But that's what Jesus experienced. But there was blessing. God blessed the fruit of Jesus' work through death in his resurrection. Now, suffering itself is not a blessing, but blessing accompanies suffering. So you can still receive the blessing of God in the midst of, of sorrow and grief and heartache and difficulty. Go through the Bible and note all the times that blessing and joy are tied to suffering and trials. So that even the presence of suffering does not remove the blessing of God. And think about Job. He's the classic picture of a guy who did everything right, he obeyed perfectly, he obeyed to the best of his ability at least, and he still suffered greatly. And you know what God says about Job, though? You know what Job, what, what the word of God says about Job at the end of his life? In Job 42, it says, he died an old man full of days. Full of days. This man who suffered things out of his control, who faced devastating tragedy in his life, nevertheless could, at the end of his life, on his tombstone, have written, he lived a full life. He lived a joyful and blessed life. And that can be said of you. Even though there are many trials in our lives, even though there are many sorrows in our lives, you too, because of the grace of God, 
can end your life full of days. And hasn't he already shown you that this past year? Despite all the difficulties, God has blessed you in a thousand ways, hasn't he? He's been kind to you in a thousand ways. And if he's been kind to you in the past, and he's been kind to all these saints before us, this whole cloud of witnesses, is he not going to take care of your future? Is he not going to help you? Is he not going to be there for you all the days of your life? Of course he is. Of course he is. And he calls us to trust that he will bless us. That we can say like Paul, whether I have much or little, I can be content because it's Christ who strengthens me. Christ is with me. I can know blessing because Christ is with me. Now, you might say, well, this is nice, but this is the Old Testament. You're kind of stretching it to apply it to New Testament Christians. We're not Israel. I don't know if I buy this. Well, I'm not saying this. The Apostle Paul is saying all this. Turn to Romans chapter 10. The Apostle Paul, in his defense of the gospel and trying to make his audiences believe the blessing and promises of God, he says this. This is starting chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So when Paul tries to explain the blessing of the gospel, he opens up Deuteronomy 30 and preaches it from that text. He preaches it from that text and applies it to the death and resurrection of Christ. If you look at Israel, they shifted, they oscillated between times of blessing and times of curse. They couldn't secure the blessing. And so God, in his grace, brings one faithful Israelite to represent us, to take the curse of the covenant, to take the curse of God, and to obey to secure the blessing forever. We will never be cut off from God again. We will never be exiled from him again. We will never be cut off from his blessings again because Jesus Christ took that curse. And we can receive, when we trust and follow Christ, the blessings that he has earned for us because of his gracious obedience. This is how God secures our eternal prosperity and riches, how he secures our restoration, our transformation, and our blessing. And the condition is the same. Trust. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Follow him. Trust him. Listen to him. It's the same faith that Moses called Israel to. Trust, believe the promise of God. And the word has come even nearer to us than it did to the Israelites. Closer than tablets of stone, but written on our own hearts. And as near to us 
as the Spirit of God and as near to us as God putting on flesh the living Word, Jesus Christ, coming to dwell with us. Jesus Christ ascended, so don't bring him down. He descended into the depths of the grave. Don't bring him up. Don't do it for yourself. The Lord Jesus Christ, as our representative, has fulfilled the conditions of God, has taken the curse of God, and now we can enjoy the blessings of his work when we trust him and we walk with him. Ephesians 2.7 says, God saved you that you might know the immeasurable riches of God's kindness to you in this age and the next. Right now, right here, you can know God's kindness to you. What is stopping you from calling on the name of the Lord today, right now, and receiving the kindness of God, receiving the restoration and the promise of change and the, and the promise of blessing? What is stopping you from doing that right now? It's not impossible. It's not out there. It's not up on a mountain. It's not deep in the sea. You don't have to do any of these great feats of heroic acts. It's right near you in the word of the gospel. It's come close to you here today to believe. You know why you can have a blessed 2022? Because Jesus loves you. You know, is is it that simple? It kind of is, isn't it? And what he calls us to is to believe that, to trust that, and to respond with grateful obedience. And we can know that we can have a blessed 2022 because we have Jesus. We have Christ. This is the gospel of Deuteronomy, and it's for you. Let's pray together.